You're listening to the City World Radio Network. High-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com Good afternoon. Welcome to Intelligent Talk with Ralph McElvenny. Join us every Thursday at 5 p.m. on the City World Radio Network as we discuss topics in politics, art, and current events. Uh, Ken, thanks so much for coming on the program, Intelligent Talk. Nice to be there. Could I just ask you... um, basically a little bit about your background. I mean, um, what the way I heard about this story is, um, could you just give us some background on what Alcatraz was as a prison and um, the famous escape in the early 1960s and 62, I believe? Sure. So, you know, Alcatraz, of course, was, was set up uh, in years ago uh, in the 30s and uh, the 40s, and it was a place to um, the government wanted to house, you know, the, the worst of the worst when it came to criminals. Uh, it was also a place that a lot of uh, prisoners went to that uh, they had a hard time uh, either escaping or they had other uh, correctional um, issues with them. Um, a person, you know, some things that probably people don't know about Alcatraz is that you were never sentenced to Alcatraz uh, in a courtroom. Uh, the only way that you were able to get to Alcatraz is that you had to be uh, either some type of a flight risk or you were, uh, like I said, someone that was um, unmanageable. And the warden of whatever prison you were in would go before a board and would recommend uh, that you be housed in Alcatraz because you were not able to be uh, controlled wherever you were at. Uh, so, you know, it's a it's a it's a. It's a place that you went to as a last resort, um, and that's the reason why a lot of the uh, inmates would say that once you got the Alcatraz, you were at the end of the line. Is that how Al Capone was stationed there, for example, because he was a troublesome inmate and he was put in Alcatraz for that reason? Uh, you know, there were uh, there were a few inmates that um, I believe, you know, there were probably certain circumstances that they wanted, to, that the government wanted to show, um, um, you know, that they had uh, control. It was more of a, you know, we're going to show you this. Some of them were like Al Capone. Uh, even Mickey Cohen was uh, actually taken uh, directly from being arrested uh, and, and sentenced straight to Alcatraz. But that was highly unusual. Most of the uh, inmates that wound up there wound up there because uh, they couldn't control them in other prisons or uh, they were constantly escaping. Now, you wrote a book, Mr. Widener, is that correct, on uh, on the on the escape? Is Am I right about it? You were co-author of a book? Actually, uh, the book was written by uh, Michael Esslinger, who is a, an Alcatraz historian, uh, and my brother. Uh, they, they, uh, they got together. I... I participated in some of the information that was um, uh, in the book. Uh, the book was being uh, written uh, during the shooting of the uh, History Channel show that we did, uh, the Alcatraz uh, Search for the Truth. So the book really took 
almost like five years to, to come out. Uh, and it covers uh, mainly from a historical view of, you know, how Alcatraz uh, was originally set up, the men uh, that came through Alcatraz, uh, including John and Clarence, uh, which are my uncles, and uh, covered all of the different escape attempts that were um, attempted during the, the, the years that Alcatraz was, was in existence. Uh, all the way up to the point uh, when it was closed uh, a year later after the '62 uh, escape. What was the name of the book, please? Uh, the name of the book. Um, one second. Uh, it is. I have it right here. I want to make sure I quoted it correctly. It's called "Escaping Alcatraz." Escaping Alcatraz. Okay. So, could you please just take us back to um, your uncles? Obviously, there were there were three people in the escape. Obviously, there were two brothers, the Anglin brothers, and a third person. And as you said, a year after Alcatraz was closed, could you just tell us about your uncles, please, and then t- take us through the escape, if you could? Sure. Um, you know, very few people know that there were actually three brothers um, that were involved in the bank robbery that wound up landing them uh, in prison. Uh, it was John and Clarence England and their brother, Alfred England. Uh, Alfred uh, was, uh, after the state trial, he was uh, sent to uh, Atlanta to do his federal time. John and Clarence were uh, sent to different prisons. One was sent to Levensworth, one was sent to, um, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the other prison. It was one up upstate New York. Uh, I'll remember it here in a minute. Okay. But uh, from um, escape attempts, they, you know, uh, they wound up uh, going to Alcatraz one arrived uh, in 1960, one arrived in 61, um, and that's where they uh, met up with Frank Morris. Frank Morris was uh, already in Alcatraz. Uh, they had spent time with Frank Morris before in the past. Uh, I think uh, they actually spent some time with him in Atlanta and even in a prison uh, that they were um, housed in in Florida one time. And so, you know, all three of these individuals had really good uh, escape skills, if you want to call it that. Um, John and Clarence, I always like to say, were the MacGyvers of the 1950s and 60s. You know, they could they could take anything that they had in their hands and they could use it uh, as a tool or an aid uh, in, order that, in order for them to escape. Because you know, Alcatraz wasn't the first prison they escaped from. Oh, uh, really? Okay. During the 50s and the 40s, when they were either sent to reform schools or to uh, juvenile detention areas and even some of the state prisons, uh, they escaped many times. Interesting. I didn't know that. Okay. Ken? So, you know, the, the I guess it was, uh, you know... The, I guess the ability that they had along with Frank Morris, which Frank Morris was also uh, a highly skilled escape artist. And uh, it just, you know, worked out that these three individuals who knew each other, um, you know, John, a lot of people don't know this about the escape either, is that John is actually the one who came up with the escape plan. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, he, yes. You know, of course, you know, most people, they... They know what happened based upon the Clint Eastwood movie and 
of course, in that movie, they played it as though uh, Frank Morris was the brains behind the escape. When, Clint Eastwood was Frank Morris, right? Clint Eastwood played Frank Morris. Um, and the only reason that they really kind of went with that uh, lead in that or that um, that line in the story was because they only had really one actor that was playing. Uh, and so, you know, they couldn't play one of the two brothers that so they decided to go with Frank Morris. But if you look through the FBI files, which I have many, many times, uh, you know, Wes will even, uh, as he's given his account after the escape to the uh, FBI and the authorities, I mean, he will tell you that, you know, it was actually John who, who constructed uh, most of the tools. John and Clarence are actually the ones who created the dummy heads, too. Uh, oh, Frank really? Morris didn't even create his head. Uh, John actually created it for him. Interesting. Uh, that he used in his bed. Um, so, you know, um, even talking to Whitey Bulger, I, I'm a good friend with Whitey Bulger, and we communicate a lot. He oh, really? He a lot about the escape that occurred, and, and he definitely said, you know, Frank Morris was no dummy. I mean, he was very highly intelligent, just like they said. Mr. Yeah. Whitey, could I just very remind people who... IQ. Can I just remind people who Whitey Bulger is? Because not everyone might know he was that famous mobster in Boston who was basically protected by the FBI. And he also had that movie about him called The Departed that Martin Scorsese did. It was essentially about White Jack Nicholson was sort of the Whitey Bulger character in that movie, as I recall. Uh, that's correct. Uh, Whitey reached out to us many years ago uh, because of the relationship that he had with John and Clarence uh, and Frank Morris because he spent time with them uh, in uh, Alcatraz, and he also spent time with uh, Alfred when he got to Atlanta. So uh, he was very good friends with John and Clarence, and and uh, uh, what, how he used to uh, reference uh, Frank as uh, Frankie uh, or Paco, uh, which was uh, Frank, little Frank in Spanish, what he likes to refer to me uh, refer to a lot. But you know, he recounted a lot of the. Uh, moving pieces in the escape, even some of the stuff that he was involved in, because he actually kind of participated in some of the materials that were collected uh, for this escape, uh, even giving uh, John uh, information about how to uh, maneuver through tides, as Whitey, you know, probably very few people know this either about Whitey Bolger, was that he was a former scuba diver. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Interesting. Yes. He, he knew all about buoyancy. He knew how to maneuver through currents. Um, he educated them on a lot about how to, you know, stay warm, how to fix or uh, do certain things to your clothes that would keep you warm. Wow, okay. Or, and keep the water flow from uh, going in and out of your clothes uh, as fast as it would on a normal person. So, I mean, he was he was very influential in some of the information that they used. Uh, and like I said, I have dozens and dozens of letters that he's written me um, that really kind of go into a lot of the detail uh, about this game. So that's that, that's uh, something that probably very few people know either. Yeah, no, I didn't know that. That's interesting. So, so, so basically... So, so they all get together. What month was the escape in 62, Mr. Wyden? Do you remember? Yes, it was June. Uh, well, they actually left their cells on June the 11th. Um, they left out pretty close around like 9, a little after 9. It was right after the head count that, uh, that they did. And uh, they were in the water uh, 
you know, up under the docks, getting ready to uh, catch a, a ride behind one of the prison boats as it was leaving. And that was right around, you know, 11 o'clock. By, uh, you know, early in the morning on the 12th, they were already on the boat. They were in a, a plane. And actually, uh, you know, 10 a.m. the next morning, they were refueling their plane down in Mexico. Mr. White, could I, could I just ask about just a night of escape? So they put the dummy heads in the beds, the three of them. They break out with the loose concrete, as shown in the movie, right? They get there. They climb up on the roof, over the fence. They get into the water. They first go to Angel Island, correct? And then they later head towards the mainland? No. No, no that, see, that's, that's a, uh, that was part of the uh, delusion that uh, was meant to be put out to throw the authorities off. I mean, you know, you stop and think about something. I mean, these men, um, is a detailed plan as they, as they had, uh, they did not get down to the water and go, okay, now what do we do? So part of the plan was just like any other plan. If you want, if you want to go south, then you want the authorities to believe that you went north. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it was originally part of the plan that they were going to go to Angel Island. That was a part of the original plan. Okay. But there was an event that occurred, uh, which, you know, I don't want to go into too much detail about this, but there was an event that occurred that altered their plan. Because um, John had originally thought about the using one of the uh, prison boats as a way of... Um, getting off of the island he his thought was you know if we hook up behind this boat at night and we allow it to tow us or tow this raft you know we could go all the way to the mainland and not ever have to even get in the water and um they thought about that for a while it was originally it was then thrown back and said well you know angel island is probably the best bet because you know, if we wound up on the mainland behind this boat, they'd see us, and then, you know, we would be caught. But once something occurred that allowed them to um, release from that boat and meet a boat halfway in between the mainland and Alcatraz, so, then ferried them to the mainland uh, to an airport where they had a waiting plane ready for them. Mr. Wider, I'm sorry, if I could just that, stop you. That pretty much changed it. Just, just so I'm clear, so somehow they hooked up with the ferry to Alcatraz. That pulled their ship to the mainland. Is that is that correct? Well, so what they did was, you know, they, they took their raft when they got down to the water. Uh, they stayed on the uh, edge of that island. Uh, if you, you know, if you look at that island where they went into the water, it's only maybe 200 yards to the docks. Okay. Uh, there's one guard tower. Uh, which was a man that was the only guard tower being manned that night. Um, they stayed very close to the edge of the island. Uh, once they got uh, up under the docks, you couldn't be seen. Uh, there was a prison boat that leaves that left uh, roughly around every hour. Uh, it was a boat that ferried uh, the guards and families and any, any prison that might have been coming in uh, back and forth between Alcatraz and the mainland. They took a 125-foot extension cord, and they wrapped it around the rudder of that boat up under the dock. And when that boat backed out, they uh, uh, just simply kind of hung on to the extension cord, and it pulled that boat 
with the three men, that raft with the three men uh, behind it, far enough that they couldn't be seen. And with the sound of the engines from the boat, no one's going to hear them. And when they rounded the uh, the island at the north tip, you know, you got to think, okay, so the current's running out at this point. When they rounded that corner, they went out just a little bit further, which is actually kind of interesting because when I did the escape from Alcatraz triathlon in 2016, that's actually about where we entered the water at. Okay. So you're thinking, okay, all this current, all this water is flowing out from up under the bridge, but if you were able to leave just on the other side of the um, the island, the water would carry you directly to, you know, Marina Green or down close to the to the um, to the Golden Gate uh, on the mainland side. But like I said, they had a boat waiting for them, which was parked halfway in between um, Alcatraz and the mainland. And that boat was flashing lights for them. And they basically, once they let go from the prison boat, uh, they paddled or didn't have to paddle too hard because the current was carrying them in that direction. And they uh, wound up running directly into that boat. Uh, They boarded the boat. They sunk uh, the raft. Actually, they didn't sink the raft. They sunk some of the stuff. Okay. They took the raft and uh, towed it all the way to the Golden Gate Bridge and released it. Because when the current came back in, that's what pushed that boat up on Angel Island. Oh, all right. Raft. So that's how the raft originally wound up on Angel Island. I see. And it was on Angel Island because they, you know, regardless of what the, the authorities want to say, uh, there was a, a memo that was later discovered by the FBI that was never meant to be released that they did find the boat on Angel Island. Okay, so Mr. White, so now they get into this other boat, and where does this boat take them to that plane? Where do they meet the plane? Uh, well, I don't want to say the actual airport. Uh, it was below San Francisco. Uh, they went out up under the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, and they turned uh, left, going south. Uh, they went down to another marina, which was not too far down. Uh, and then from there, that's where they boarded the plane that was waiting for them from their good friend that they grew up with. Uh, family friend, and from there he flew them uh, all the way down into Mexico, where that's where they were for some time before they eventually wound up in Brazil. Okay, so what they what did they stay in Mexico for a few years and they somehow get to Brazil, or it was well, I, I the place in, in Mexico was a farm that they were originally going to be going to. Uh, that was the plan all along, but. Some other circumstances happened um, that forced them uh, to leave Mexico. And after they left Mexico, they went deeper into South America, uh, all the way down into Brazil. Okay. And from there, they were able to purchase uh, some land from someone who was getting rid of it, a very large uh, section of land. And that's pretty much where they settled down at. Uh, I know that John Clarence married. I know they had children. I know they, uh, you know, they lived there all pretty much most of their life. Uh, occasionally they came back, but it wasn't uh, wasn't until many many years afterwards. Uh, as far as Frank Morris, I know he was there with them for, you know, at some point in time, but I I don't believe he stayed there, and I have no clue where he went after that. 
Okay, so Mr. White, do you know if the? I mean, I'm sorry, you may not be able to answer these questions, but just did the did the plane file a flight plan to go from California to Mexico? And do you know what type of plane it was? Uh, no. These you got to remember. Uh, you got to later in life, uh, this person who flew them, which is um, uh, Fred Breezy. So what's his name? Drug, uh, Fred Breezy. Okay. He was yeah. He was the one who grew up with them. He was part of this whole plan of the escape, uh, and he was a drug one. He ran drugs in and out of South America in his plane, uh, along with some other people. And, you know, these people knew how to fly under the radar. Is he still uh, alive, Mr. Whitehead? No, he's not. Okay. And sorry, how do you spell his last name, please? B-R-I-Z-Z-I. Okay. Okay, so he flies them to Mexico. How do they have money to live and then buy that farm in, in, in Brazil? How do they how do they have any cash to survive? Did he give them money to Well, this this is where, you know, there's a, a story that one I don't want to talk about right now, only because we are working on I'm currently working with a producer uh, on a TV show that will reveal all of this okay so they were they were working with someone uh who provided them the cash and the means to get out um in exchange for what they were going to be doing for him okay now, now, now mr white just just to understand they then just as far as just further proof that they they were alive if not still alive today they provided notes to their mother right i mean every year they sent notes there was also a photograph of them in brazil in the 70s is that right Yes. So, uh, you know, growing up, I mean, we, we always knew, uh, as I was a you know small kid, uh, we always knew that there were people in the family uh, who, one, knew where they were at. Okay. Um, uh, maintained contact with them. You know, later uh, we found out uh, if, who the uncle was. Uh, it was another uncle, one of their brothers, who uh, confessed on his deathbed that, you know, he was in contact with them for 25 years, uh, for the first 25 years. Uh, because I believe that at some point in time, um, you know, their their life, they eventually got set up in, in Brazil with a life with a family and, like I said, um, wife and family and, you know, eventually grandchildren. And, you know, they didn't want this to continue down that road with them so you know probably a lot of it was kept under the covers all right but um yeah so you know eventually this um fred breezy who was like i said a, a longtime friend of theirs who flew them out of the country uh also kept in contact with them a lot and he is the one who took that photograph of them in, in 1975 why did they allow their, the, that photograph to be taken mr widener why would they allow that well, it, it was meant uh, to be given to the family. Uh, the, it wasn't actually given to the family until 1992. And uh, the family kept it under wraps until we knew that there was absolutely no way that anyone could ever find them nor even uh, uncover them. Because, you know, like I told one of the marshals, um, not too long ago, I said, John could walk up to you right now and tap you on the shoulder and, you know, ask you for some directions, and you would not even know who he was. 
So, you know, the family feels like right now, one, they will never be found. Uh, so, and also, too, we, we knew that it was okay to share this photograph. We got, you know, we got the okay from uh, family members to be able to do this. Uh, because we wanted to show, you know, the American people that, yeah, these men did survive. They did not drown like the authorities want you to believe. Uh, it was it was a cover-up on some levels. Um, it, it goes pretty deep in, in some of the people that were involved in this event. But, you know, we wanted the, the people to know that these, these men did survive. They, they survived, all three of them. They lived good lives. Um, so that's, that's one of the reasons why we came out with that, uh, with that photograph. Mr. Weider, can you tell me if, there, if any of them are still alive today? Uh, I know Clarence is not alive. Um, I am not 100% sure on John. I have no clue about Frank Morris. Like I said, I know that Frank Morris was uh, with them in 75 when that photograph was taking, taken. I know he was down there, but I don't know whether or not, um, you know, whatever happened to him after that. Was, it, was there any discussion with the authorities that just, I mean, these people were not, the crimes that they were committed were not, they weren't super, they weren't murders, were they, with the Anglin brothers? No, no, no. And see, that's a story in itself. Um, you know, like I said, they they were doing petty crimes uh, when they were growing up. You know, they grew up in a very, very poor family. They were farm. Their father and mother owned a small farm. They were migrant workers. Uh, didn't have a whole lot in life. Um uh, wound up dropping out of school early because of being bullied for, you know, their um, their lifestyle, their clothes. And like I said, they, they were very poor. Uh, wound up getting into trouble, uh, learning early in life that they could get things that they wanted by committing crimes. You know, they like I said, they wound up going to, you know, a couple of years in state jail here, state jail there. And so they never really got into anything major. The bank robbery was uh, way over their head. That was what got them in trouble. And when they robbed the bank in Alabama, they didn't realize that the state of Alabama has um, the death penalty for bank robbers at that time. They um, they wound up pleading guilty uh, for the federal crime, and they thought that that was going to be the end. In fact, they were actually coerced into pleading guilty because they were being told, okay, you know, you, you're going to do some time for this crime. We're going to send you away to Atlanta. They gave John 10 years. They gave uh, Clarence and Alfred 15 years. They told them, you know, you go away, you you do your time. You, if you're good behavior, you'll be out on, you know, parole within five to six years. So they were willing to do that. In fact, I have the the, doc, the manuscript of their federal trial. They were sentenced, uh, convicted, all in the same day. Got it. The but trial occurred before judge. They never went before a grand jury. I mean, some of some of it's kind of comical when you read it. It's straight out of the nineteen you know fifties. My, uh, you would think of of a uh, of a courtroom in rural Alabama. Mr. Weider? And so, 
they were sentenced and they, they went to Atlanta to start serving the federal time. They were there one day. Okay. And the state of Alabama decided to try them again for the same crime. So they brought them back to Alabama two days later. And in that trial, they pled not guilty because they knew what was happening. They were being railroaded. And all of them got 25 years each. It's, it's amazing. You think about it. Yeah. So they got, they got um, you know, they got 15 years for a federal crime. And on the exact same charge on the state crime, they gave them 25 years. Can I, can I just ask you, so, did, did, just, just, sure. did you personally ever speak to them or your relatives? I mean, did you ever have a phone conversation? Do you have 100% proof that they were alive? Do you have letters that you, I know you don't want to show me, and you're probably waiting for this TV program or other things, but do you have 100% proof right now that they were, they are alive, they were alive in your possession? Well, you know, there there are a lot of things that the family has. Like I, I've told people before, that's not the only photograph we have. Okay. You know, people might have thought, oh, well, you know, you've got a photograph that someone gave you. But there are a lot of other information that we have that we have never shared. And why? why? Never will. Why not? I, well, because um, I'm not 100% sure, like I said, that John is dead yet. And... You know, I've had the marshals tell me, you know, hey, kid, if, if John and them or Clarence, if he's still alive, will turn themselves in, you know, they'll go to jail for a few days and, you know, they'll be released if they've never committed anything else. And then, uh, you know, we never thought we never believed the authorities. And good reason, too, is because I don't know if you remember this, probably about four or five years ago, there was an individual in Florida, a man who had been on the run for 50 years for bank robbery. He's in jail right now. No, I didn't Caught know that. Him and he is still in jail. You know, what actually, so what case? I believe that they would uh, allow them to be, to just walk away scot-free. No. And Mr. so until we know 100% that the last one is no longer around, we're not going to be sharing anything that them caught in any way. What this reminds you of, you may remember in the 1960s, there was a famous train robbery in England, the great train robbery, and one of the prisoners, you remember that case? I do remember that. He went to Brazil, and he he later went back to England, and they didn't didn't do anything, but obviously he was near his death. But for years, he would have lunch with people in Brazil, and I think it was in Rio, and people would pay to have lunch with him, and he was kind of a, I think his name was Briggs or Big, something like that. You would just think that, you you would just think that, I mean, these, your relatives are, are, are arguably the most famous escapees in history, you know, on the line of Papillon. I mean, that kind of a amazing thing. You would just think that, that and, and as you said, the crimes itself were not that serious. It was not a murder. wasn't anything like that. You would think that a good lawyer in Washington or someone could be hired to negotiate if they were still alive, even in the 1970s or 80s, to bring them back and, and, and let this thing sort of be done with. I mean, especially with all the publicity you have on your side. I don't know about the person in Florida. Obviously, I can't speak to that. But this is obviously a very famous case, and you would think maybe it would be an exception to what you were just saying. Maybe not, but... Well, you know, you would also think that uh, you would also think that the authorities were not still uh, listening to our phone conversations or even uh, trailing or, or doing surveillance on the family members, but they still are today. They, they are, they're still doing so, that today? Oh, yes. Oh, my God. And uh, so, you know, 
give a case in point, my the Anglin family, my mom and, and her sisters and brothers that were alive during this time, there was a book written back in the um, back in the early 90s, the late 80s. It was called Riddle of the Rock. The uh, author that, uh, you know, talked them into writing this book, uh, they shared a lot of information in this book. And later in life, uh, when we were doing this uh, show with the History Channel, uh, come to find out the marshal, retired marshal, who was in the show with us, we were able to find out that they were actually using that writer to get to the family as a mold into the family. My God, so, why would they be yeah. so concerned with such an... Is it, just, is it just because this case embarrassed the federal government? Is that why they'd be so intent upon kind of like prosecuting? I mean, I understand they've closed the D.B. Cooper case, mm. which I think was 1972, that famous Sky, you know, sky Bank robbery from the, seven, from the plane when the person jumped out of the plane, and that was almost 10 years after this. I, I will say this, you know, it, it is part of the embarrassment that occurred with the federal government, but there is also, I believe, something that runs a little deeper. Okay. And I don't want to get into it right now because, like I said, I, I hope that it will come out uh, in this TV show. But some of the people that they were involved with uh, during this escape, and uh, it, it's pretty amazing. I mean, it's uh, if you sit down and you were to draw uh, a line between these people and some of the events in history, it is really amazing how that all of this is related together. Mr. Widener, when you say these people... The federal government is trying to keep that piece of it, you know, uh, covered up. I'm not 100% sure that, you know, that they were all involved in some of these things, but some of the people that they were um, in contact with or uh, had relationships with uh, played some pretty big pieces uh, in history. So that's all I'll say. So, to, to, I know you can't give me names, but you're saying some of the people who were involved in this case played very big roles in history, and there's undercurrents of reasons why they would want this covered up. Is that essentially what you're saying? You know what? Uh, after looking at all the evidence and the stuff that I pulled together, yes. Okay. I mean, that, that, that's another fascinating. Was it related to the. Yes, cl- it is. Yeah. I mean, it, it's. it's, oh. it's and you're saying that to this day, you're st- so who 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 is still involved in this case? Is it the U.S. Marshal Service, or who's actively looking still? Well, so uh, uh, the current marshal that's working it today is uh, a man named Michael Dykes. Uh, he is stationed. He's about ready to retire, according to what he told me the last time I talked to him. Uh, he is stationed in San Francisco in the California area. He is the current marshal that's uh, actively working the case. The uh, the retired marshal that was in the show with us, uh, Art Roderick, he worked the case for 25 years. And so, um, you know, they're, they're very much still involved in this. And I'll give you an example of, of how they're involved in this. Please. So you, you heard about the letter that supposedly came out uh, recently that John supposedly wrote uh, saying that he was dying that was um, given to uh, – or sent to the San Francisco, a San Francisco Police Department. Yes, basically saying that they had cancer and if he, would, he wanted to be treated, and if he was treated, he would give himself up, correct? Exactly. exactly. So, you know, one, we know that the family knows that that uh, isn't from him, okay? But the fact that they received that letter in 2013 
it was given to the marshal service, this, this particular marshal that's over the case. He took that letter to the FBI. Uh, they tried to pull DNA off of it and compare it to the DNA that we gave them from Alfred during this show, also the fingerprints. So during the shooting of the show, he knows that this letter existed. He never once told us about this letter. Now, you know, like I said, we don't believe the letter came from John, but it's the fact that you had a piece of evidence that, you know, so, so what if it was, what if it had been from John? Right. You're, you know, he's dying, and you have information that you could get in touch with his sisters or brothers and say, hey, we got a letter. We don't know if it's from him or not. But, sure. You know, when we're suspicious, he's dying. We want to let you know this in case you want to reach out to him. The only way that we found out about it was just, what, a year ago, not, not even a year ago, the beginning of this year, when it was leaked to a news um uh, a TV station uh, in San Francisco, and that's how we found out about it. When I contacted the marshal, I said, "So you had this in 2013 when I was sitting down and you know across the your desk talking to you during the shooting of the show." And I said, "You never once offered to even share that with me." And he said, "Well, we don't share evidence in an active case. So if they believe this is still an active case, uh, then yes, they are still after these men." Uh, and he told me they would be after them until either they turn 99 years old or they find them dead. <laughs> well, that's interesting. I mean, is there any evidence that any of these, the Anglin brothers, ever came back to the United States or maybe came back through Mexico by Frank Buzzy flew them in? Or did he ever, anything that you could tell me on that front at all? Or maybe you well, can't. Well, you know, I, I, after reading some of, I mean, if you've ever read the FBI uh, files that were released uh, years ago, a lot of it's redacted, but there were there were a few uh, recorded incidents that occurred at the Mexico-United States border that would lead one to believe that it was definitely them that came back across. Now, I know that at some point in time, this brother of theirs, my uncle, that was in touch with them, did move to Mexico, uh, did move to Texas at the borderline, and my understanding is that that's where he would meet them when they would come across. Uh, he did, I believe, ferry them many times to go see their dying dad. Uh, they were not able to see their mom because she passed away uh, unexpectedly in 1972. And, you know, that was really hard on them. Can I ask uh, you? Were- Sorry, I'm just trying to write. It's such a fascinating story. And that's what my only limited time left. When you tell me that they got towed by the, by the boat, for example, from the very beginning of our conversation, and, and then the Frank Buzzy flying them uh, to Mexico, did you, do you know that from hearing them from Frank Buzzy or hearing them directly? Or how do you know about, for example, the prison tow? tow? <laughs> Sorry so, to try to pin you down, but it's just a fascinating story. Yeah. No, no, I understand. So whenever uh, Frank Breezy gave uh, the family those photographs in 1992, he... Um, he was meeting with the family, and my uncle brought him to the family who were in contact with uh, the brothers. And my mom, as a pack rat as she is, had the um, had the uh, the uh, you know audacity to record the meeting. <laughs> uh, she she asked, "Was it okay if she recorded it?" And she did. And you can hear I have a forty-five minute recording 
where Fred Breezy talks about the meeting with them in Brazil, talks about the, uh, the how they escaped, uh, and even talked about the plane when they landed in Mexico and refueled uh, when they first heard the escape the next morning on the radio. That's I mean also. So I do have Frank Breezy on tape admitting to this. Okay, and do, do you know if they, how many children they have alive today in Brazil? Like between the three of them or the two the two brothers, is it three, four, five? Do they still does the family today still own the farm? Uh, do you know anything about that? Uh, I don't believe that the family still owns the size of the farm that they originally had. Uh, they originally had a very, very large farm. Um, I, I don't, I don't know 100% sure if the family still owns all of it. I think there are pieces of it that is still owned. I have a very good, um, a very good uh, idea about where the farm is located at. Okay. Uh, I I've been able, you know, the nice thing about Google Maps is, you know, I can. I can do a lot of searching, you know, uh, on some some levels. Right. And I've been able to actually come to a place where that photograph was taken at. Really? Okay. Can you tell me so, the, what city it was near I, or not? I know, I know about the area. I know, uh, you know, and if we ever uh, continue the documentary that I hope one day we will, because my my vision of this TV show that we we're trying to get produced is that it would be um, it would be a TV show that would be done with real actors. We would have multiple seasons. It would cover uh, what really occurred in the planning and the detail piece of this escape, uh, how they got out, who the major players were, uh, where they went to in Mexico, and then eventually where they went to in uh, Brazil. And then we wanted to follow that up with an actual documentary uh, where we would go down into this uh, place that I'm, you know, pretty sure this is where it's at. And we would actually find um, my relatives that are down there along with the grave of where Clarence is buried. And we will put to rest 100 percent that uh, that was them. Well, that's, that would be a fascinating thing. I mean, just it's just amazing that in the 1970s when that movie came out, the Clint Eastwood movie came out, that they were all still alive. They may have even seen it in the movie theaters in Brazil, for all I know. And, oh, well, they, uh, oh, well, they actually did. They watched it. They did? <laughs> How do you know oh, that, yes, for example? Uh, well, Breezy told us. About it. <laughs> <laughs> he told us that they actually watched the movie and liked it. Uh, <laughs> they have read many books that were written about it. Um, I'm almost... I'm not 100% sure, but uh, I know that the way Whitey Bulger, I know that Whitey Bulger, when he was on the run, uh, actually went out to Alcatraz and took a tour of Alcatraz while he was on the run. Right, he was living in Santa Monica, right, with that girlfriend who they got up through the teeth. Exactly, yeah. exactly. I actually think John has gone, but I'm not 100% sure. That I mean, it's just, it's just an incredible story, and... Uh, I mean, one of the, certainly the most famous escape in American history and one of the most famous escapes in the world history, and that they made it and yeah. that they were alive and that they were... I mean, some people, just to... I, I know we're coming to the end of our time, uh, Mr. Weiner. Some people will attack... I, I've heard this Fred Buzzy a little bit. I've read about him in the past. Some people will attack him, obviously, because of what he was doing and his credibility. But I guess you you don't have any problems with his credibility. You think his stories are 100% true, I imagine. Well, 
I know someone, I will never give his name because he asked me not to. Okay. But I know someone who is still alive today who flew with Fred Breezy. Really? And will, oh yeah, and will back up that, you know, Fred Breezy was a, a drug runner. He was a drug, you know, he, he, he wasn't a drug dealer. He was the person that moved the drugs. Uh, and he told me there was one thing about Fred Breezy is that he was not a liar. Okay. And he knew when Fred Breezy went down into these areas. In fact, he even went down with him a couple of times. Uh, so, you know, I have someone who actually knew Fred. How did the FBI and, not track this guy down? I mean, how, how have they not found this person? It's great that they haven't, but, um, and that you, you're not giving the name, but it's just amazing that they haven't found uh, They probably don't know it. And so, you know, there's a, I, I'm not saying they're not smart, but there's some things they don't know because, um, you know, I've never really, sh I've never shared the name with anyone, not even my brother. He doesn't even know who I'm talking about. Okay. Uh, and so I, and I promised this guy I would never use his name because that's in his past and he doesn't want it revealed, you know, brought up anymore because he has a family and a life and a career and, you know, he's, he's, he's done his time. So uh, I'm, I, I respect him and respect uh, what he asked me to do and I will not do it, so. Unless he ever gave me the uh, the okay to do it. Sure, sure. Um, but, you know, uh, I would just say this. There's a lot of people on the island, and I've talked to some of the park rangers, and, you know, they don't believe any of the story. And I've always said this, even to the marshals. You show me any piece of evidence that you have that proves that they did not make it. I mean, I want to see it. Show me something that you've got. You know, they uh, a lot of the... Um, a lot of the uh, evidence that they claimed they had was those bones that they thought for sure were the Anglin brothers. And in the show, that's part of, you know, the show. We gave, we allowed them to exhume Alfred, take DNA from him, an actual brother, and compare it to those bones that they found washed up on the shore years and years ago. And it was determined that was not them. Okay. So... You know, I've always said the family came out with a piece of evidence, and all you want to do is shoot it down, okay? Show me your evidence. Right. Show me anything you have, and I'll be willing to look at it. But they, the, the fact is, there isn't any evidence. Well... Mr. Widener, I have to pretty much wrap this up now, cause, but yeah, but it's just it's a fascinating story. I'm even more interested now than I was before, and I have so many other questions. I'll just have to think about. Maybe we could just speak another time. But it's <laughs> it's an amazing story, and uh, it's so interesting to hear you tell it firsthand, and obviously your connection to it. I mean, Papillon is also one of my favorite films too. It kind of reminds me of a Papillon story, as I said earlier. But thank you so much for, you. Your, for your time, Mr. Widener, and good luck with your program, and good luck with your hopeful TV show. And maybe we'll speak again someday if that's okay. And thank you so much again for your time. Sounds very good. Thank, Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, how, how long was that? Voted number one jazz cabaret club by New York Magazine, the Metropolitan Room is one of the most critically acclaimed venues in New York City and is known as the home for big-name talents and rising stars. Known as a celebrity hangout, the Metropolitan Room is a high-end cabaret and jazz club and brings the best in live music to New York City every night of the week. Fabulous award-winning Broadway, TV, film, and radio performers take the stage in an intimate 115-seat elegant venue. Aside from the great highly professional artistic shows and audience, 
Metropolitan Room provides an exceptional appetizer and dessert menu as well as exotic and specialty drinks prepared by top New York City bartenders. The Metropolitan Room is located at 34 West 22nd Street, conveniently located near public transportation. For information or reservations, call area code 212-206-0440. Once again, the area code is 212-206-0440. Or go to their website at www.metropolitanroom.com. On Thursday, May 15th, Holy Apostle Soup Kitchen, New York's largest emergency food program, is hosting From Farm to Tray, a sustainable food benefit. To support hungry New Yorkers, please visit farmtotray.org to purchase tickets or make a donation. Guests at From Farm to Tray will dine in the beautiful landmark Holy Apostles Church, a space that New York Times journalist Anna Quinlan named the most majestic dining room in New York City. Visit farmtotray.org for details. See you at the Soup Kitchen. Sparky the Fire Dog here. Protect your family from fire. Make sure your home has smoke alarms in every bedroom, outside your sleeping areas, and on every level of your home, even your basement. For games and activities, go to sparky.org. We want to keep you, your family, and your community safer from fire. This message brought to you by the National Fire Protection Association and your local fire department. Visit sparky.org. On Thursday, May 15th, Holy Apostles Soup Kitchen, New York's largest emergency food program, is hosting From Farm to Tray, a sustainable food benefit. To support hungry New Yorkers, please visit farmtotray.org to purchase tickets or make a donation. Guests at Farm to Tray will dine in the beautiful landmark Holy Apostles Church, a space that New York Times journalist Anna Quinlan named the most majestic dining room in New York City. Visit farmtotrade.org for details. Hi there, I'm Tim McGraw. One of the great things about music is how it brings people together. Kids like to hang out, listen to music, and talk about what's hot and what's not on the music scene. And playing instruments and singing provides a way for young people to get together and interact in a cooperative and respectful way. Kids who play in school ensembles understand that every part has to work together for the result to be the magical art called music. Your local school music programs provide a golden opportunity for your child to experience the rewards of learning music. Why not pay a visit to the music teacher to find out what's going on? Get your kids involved with school music. A PSA brought to you by MENC, the National Association for Music Education, Gibson Musical Instruments, and the National Anthem Project, the campaign to restore America's voice through music education. Music, part of a sound education. If you served honorably in our nation,